1: details barbican screen talks hello and welcome to this the latest in a new series of barbican screen talks each month we're delving into the vaults dusting off some old tapes and re-releasing exclusive interviews with some of the world's leading filmmakers our rich archive of Screentalk Q&As includes conversations with veteran political filmmaker Ken Loach, mind-expanding maverick Terry Gilliam, and BAFTA-winning, barrier-smashing director Amara Asante. But in this podcast, we hear from one of the most important and radical new voices to have emerged in British cinema, someone who's also responsible for bringing Tom Hiddleston to the big screen. Filmmaker and artist Joanna Hogg has written and directed a trio of intimate and unsettling family dramas, Unrelated, Archipelago, and Exhibition. All three films feature Hiddleston and focus on middle-class anxieties, fractured families and simmering sexual tension. Hogg also regularly uses non-professional actors and improvised dialogue to create a new type of cinematic social realism. In this screen talk from 2014, Joanna Hogg talks to critic Catherine Bray about her film Exhibition. Set almost entirely in a magnificent modernist house in London, Exhibition stars ex-Slitz musician Viv Albertine and conceptual artist Liam Gillick. The pair play long-married couple D and H, who are facing disruption to their lives as they prepare to sell their home for reasons unknown. In the interview you're about to hear, Hogg explains why the incidental sounds of locations are so important in her work. She discusses how casting exhibition four days before shooting was a risk that paid off. And she reveals why she can never watch her films once she's made them. But first, a note. This recording comes from our tape archive, and this particular tape was a bit dustier than most. So be prepared for some authentic crackling and microphone rustling throughout. I'm Eleni e. Jones. Join me in the back row of Barbican Cinema 1 as we settle in for this screen talk with Joanna Hogg.
2: I'm going to open it up to questions from you guys in a moment, but first, um, I'd just like to say that I think one of the things that I love about this film and actually all of your work is that people are allowed to make small mistakes in contrast to a lot of other filmmakers where people either make big mistakes or none at all. You know, in, in your films people, they'll, they'll change their mind mid-sentence, they'll interrupt themselves, it's like a very sort of digressive style of dialogue, they'll lash out at a partner and change their mind. It just really helps you feel that you're watching real people. Is that something that comes out of the style of part improvisation and part, you know, script or is it something you need to encourage your actors to do more? Where does that come from? I mean, I
0: think it's not accidental. It's just that I want to have a feeling of something that's alive, that's, I mean, as much as, like, real life as possible in a way. And then I suppose from that idea of something that's quite, feels quite alive, then I create or or I shoot sort of accordingly. So then sort of improvisation, although I hesitate to call it improvisation, but the sort of way of working where I allow people to... I, I sort of give them a, a, a kind of idea of what I want them to say, but then I want them to put it in their own words. So then that that comes out of that desire to um, feel like it's sort of real speech rather than something very clipped and very uh, kind of organised and sort of less real, I suppose. But at the same time, I feel I'm changing my my mind about this as I go along because I recently adapted... Um, something for radio, written by Harold Pinter, and he's sort of like the opposite of that. And I find there's something very interesting, um, and well, possibly kind of more real about that style. I don't know. So I'm 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 constantly, I kind of allow myself to sort of change and try mm-hmm. things in different ways. That's interesting.
2: I think one one of the things that people said about Pinter is that he had a tape recorder for an ear. And while I think I understand why people say that, it does a disservice to what he did as an artist. In a sense, because it suggests that it's not a graph. You know, it's mechanical taking down of what people say. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about spaces because they're obviously very important in all your work. You know, in unrelated, you've got the Italian villa in archipelago, you've got the the holiday home, and then here we have obviously a film that is. The house is a character. Have you always felt that way about the places that you've lived?
0: I have and I, I've been thinking about it recently because um, in a sense I feel a bit of a fraud with this film because I made it before having sort of done a big move myself. I mean I'm actually right now in the middle of moving home and it's made me think about how much I value the space that I live in, the kind of relationship with where I live is, uh, is just sort of fundamental me somehow. I mean I actually I've only moved three times in my life and apparently I was reading something that the average number of times someone moves is around eight times. So I'm kind of I'm already <laughs> kinda of getting on in life and so I'm not I'm not doing very well. But it obviously says something that I've become very attached to the places that I live in and that I grow to love and not even maybe just the places that I live in, also places where I've had holidays. I mean, with Archipelago, it was based on a place that I went to as a child. Every Easter, we'd go and stay on this little island. And so I've, you know, I still remember that very fondly, like it's somewhere I lived on some level. So yes, uh, <laughs> I'm obviously very influenced by the places that I live in. I
2: was reading the other day, uh, the British director Ben Wheatley saying that he the things that scare him into his films, his top list of things that are absolutely... Terrifying, you know, pant scary, is dinner parties. Your films always have a brilliant dinner party scene in that's incredibly uncomfortable to watch. I mean, is the experience of having a dinner party with you a
0: scary one? or? I really hate dinner parties. Sorry if anyone's about to ask me to <laughs> dinner, but I really, I, I have a problem with them. There's something about six or eight people sitting round a table that I find really stultifying. Uh, you know, fine for maybe an hour and a half or something, but a dinner party that goes on for three or four hours is just kind of my worst nightmare really so I I mean I like gatherings but I prefer gatherings of a lot of people where you're a bit more mobile you can move around you're not stuck sitting next to somebody or between two people.
2: But amazing grist to the mill of your eye for the unspoken social rules and the transgressions of those is that something you've always been interested in?
0: I think so I mean I think I've been in those situations but much more as an observer than a participator. Um,
2: yeah. I think we should turn it over to you guys for some questions. Um, who is going to be brave and ask the first question? Front row, indeed.
0: I, I can't imagine you could make the film any better than it was, but I'm just wondering, um, revisiting it you know, two, three years later and watching it, do you find yourself wondering what you could have done differently? Does it feel like a complete film, or are there things that, that have been niggling you? Well, I think the problem is I, I haven't watched it, and I can't watch it and particularly with what I'm... No, I didn't watch it tonight (laughs) so I haven't really watched it since um, I think when we were um, grading it and, and, you know, we had the sort of first screenings I I haven't really seen it since then Uh, so I I sort of, I I neatly avoid that I I know myself too well I I would... hate everything that I saw and of course would have wanted to do everything differently and as time goes by yes it becomes more difficult you know you more critical maybe.
2: Uh, Do you ever wonder what happens to the characters after they sold the house?
0: I think you I think probably you as an audience think about that more than I think about it and as I was just saying earlier I'm, I'm only right now sort of dealing with a move myself so I think I probably if I watched the film I'd have a, I'd have a different perspective on it I, don't, I, I just don't know I can see how a move if you're in a couple it does put a lot of pressure on that relationship because somehow the relationship to the place is so important it sort of competes in a way with the relationship with the person so I would suspect you know they will continue to sort of have difficulties after the move but then people keep reassuring me friends that I talk to that once you move, you don't actually look back. It's, it's the sort of final weeks in a place before you move that's the most painful, and I'm kind of hanging on to that. Some of you here might think that's absolutely rubbish, and you kind of carry on, <laughs> a sort of mourning a place once you've moved, but I'm sort of hoping that literally once the door closes, then passages the passage is new, really. Hi. How, in terms of your process, obviously you spent a lot of time in the house. How much of the film was the, was created... In the house, and how much of it was planned and scripted before? Because you've said it's there was well there was improvisation. It seemed to me that you could only do that in situ. Um, is that the case? It's a really difficult one to answer. I don't know. Maybe you can add to this. I mean, I it uh, I, I have a very precise plan before the shoot, and it seems that there's a lot of deviation from that original plan when we're shooting. And then once we've sort of gone through the process of editing and, and finishing the film, suddenly, um, kind of in the words of my editor, she felt that, that, that it was very true to my original plan. So you sort of go on a, you've got to go on a journey. I mean, for me, the, the pleasure of making films is about discovering things every day and taking risks and not knowing where you're going, which is kind of a luxury with films because there's so much money kind of invested in them. But I sort of make sure I have that freedom And So you feel like you're going far away from what you originally planned, but actually, in the end, yes, you end.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month.
0: Creating um, something that's very, very true to where you originally set out, but you, I, I don't know. I just it's just a, an adventure, and there are some things that I couldn't, as you say, you, I couldn't have planned. And the performers will sort of go in a direction that I haven't thought about. And Viv and Liam were fantastically creative and were great collaborators. And likewise, working with you know all the crew, there's lots of ideas that come up. I'm open to kind of other ideas, and then. Um, It just sort of shapes itself somehow.
2: I believe they were cast within a few days of the shoot starting, is that right?
0: Yes, yes. Actually that's a good point because Liam and Viv hadn't met each other before. I mean they'd met each other sort of about four days before we started shooting. So in the process of shooting the film they were getting to know each other. So that, um, you couldn't, you, you sort of can't plan that kind of relationship that's developing as you're filming. And and they somehow, kind of in not knowing each other and tr- and getting to know each other, that sort of created the sort of intimacy, yet the sort of non-intimacy of a couple who have been together for a long time. It somehow strangely kind of fed into that. Yeah, it was very risky. I mean, it was very exciting, but very risky. Uh, not having my cast until the last moment.
2: You <laughs> said, in fact, wonderful speech and dialogue sorry, between uh, Tom Hiddleston and, and the lead about sexual relationships and whether it's possible to still have good sex after 12 years. I think that's a lovely strand in your work that we don't see much of on screen.
0: Yeah, between mm. yeah, people who have known each other for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there was another
2: question right there.
0: Hi. There's a wonderful series of static compositions throughout and I was wondering, during the shoot, whether you felt any kind of pressure to find the next frame to live up to, the, you know, what, what had come before, or or whether you just happened to create <laughs> such interesting compositions throughout and there was not that concern to be doing it each time. I, I think, Ed, if you don't mind, I'm going to bring you in on this. I'd really like to hear what Ed has to say about that. Ed's the cinematographer. Just Ed to, Rutherford cinematographer. Ed
1: just wondering if you want to come around for dinner some, sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: No, right.
1: Um, I think compositionally, we're lucky with the prep and with planning to have access to the location during that time. So it was, it was, it's a very exciting place to photograph. And I think the more time we spent in that, the more the shorthand became clearer and easier to sort of grasp. And, and as such, we, we kept finding interesting compositions along the way
0: yeah and I think sometimes we we felt you know rather than sort of trying to top a previous image with the next one it was actually sometimes a case of well this is looking too beautiful you know maybe let's change the angle slightly or this is looking too much like an estate agent's brochure or something or you know so we we sort of um we're aware you know because yeah. it's a very beautiful house beauty can get boring off- after yeah, I, I all that's... these different types of beauty completely see what you mean. I think
2: it was a whole school of young cinematographers accidentally making things look like John Lewis ads because they admire Terence Malick so much. So that's <laughs> prettification. Uh, I think there was another question back there. Yeah, I really liked the film. Um, I had the feeling sometimes that I was sort of like in a fish tank with the house and that was sort of amplified by the sound in a way, which I thought was really interesting because it's sort of like sometimes characters wouldn't speak through just by speaking but they were speaking through what they decided to listen to and what they decided not to listen to and I was just wondering if you could talk about sound design and and how that affected the script whether something that you thought about before or it came afterwards
0: it, it was one of the the first things I thought about actually because the house itself um the sounds in the house really struck me um, it's a very particular character to the place and I, and I think I'm often noticing sounds more than images sometimes I'm, I'm sort of deeply uh, kind of interested in, in sound and how much it influences us sort of day to day and I'm constantly noticing things and yeah everyday sound is, is a really important thing for me but the, anyway going back to the house it sort of got me thinking about sounds and sounds that we get used to in a place and that how we can miss how somewhere looks but we can also miss the sounds of somewhere. And one of the first places I lived in, where I had a um, I shared a flat with somebody, and I and I um, and I can still remember now. I can hear in my head that I'm sure many of you can do the same thing. I can hear the sounds of that place in my head, and sounds also from the family home that I grew up in. So yeah, the sort of ghosts of sounds that I really wanted to depict in this story, but then also because anxiety is sort of very much part of the sort of fabric of this film, I I was interested also in how anxiety or becoming anxious about something often that's based on sounds and sounds that we hear and living in a city there's a lot of fear around and sounds of sirens and a sort of cacophony of these sort of sirens and screams and shouts and uh, noises and yeah I wanted to sort of make a kind of music out of those sounds because I really um, those are the sort of things I hear so it was it was pushing the sound design a step further from the previous film with Archipelago I was in a more natural environment I didn't have the sort of city to play with, so the city was like having a new set of instruments to play, and and, and that's something, yes, with my next film, I'll continue to sort of develop the, the soundscape.
2: Yes, so that is a good point to talk about, your next film. Were you allowed to sort of tell us anything about it, or...?
0: Uh, I mean, I'm allowed to, but my only my only uh, problem is that I, if I talk too much about something that I'm going to do, the danger is that I might either not do it or put myself off it or something. I don't know. I actually right now am strug- struggling a little bit uh, with it um, because I've got other projects going on in my life and I find that really difficult. I tend to be a sort of project by project person I'm trying to get better at doing a number of things at the same time but it just doesn't seem to happen for me and it's why we were talking about Ben Wheatley earlier (laughs) and how prolific he is he seems to sort of you know before he's even finished one film he's on to another and I'm sort of in awe of that I, I, I just can't do that myself maybe I put almost too much of myself into something I become so strongly identified with it, and then I get exhausted because I put so much into it that then it t- takes me a while to recover before I can start another project. And, and life has its own projects as well, so if there's a kind of life project going on as well, but, uh, but then I do sort of try and go into something very deeply. But the, but the film that I'm trying to write at the moment and hoping to shoot next year, which seems uh, kind of optimistic in a way, but I think it'll happen, I tend to decide when I'm gonna shoot a film and then aim towards that. Um, but it's something, it's, it's slightly different because it's not just set in one location um, like the other three films. It's set, well, it's set in the past and uh, over a number of different locations it's set in the 1980s. And so I'm exploring a lot of about the past, about how London was in the early 1980s, how incredibly different it was. I mean, it's so, it's so difficult. I find it frustrating in a way. I want to just sort of transport myself back to that time so I can look around and hear and see what's going on. And actually sound, <laughs> was a, is, I think, has changed hugely. I mean, in in, in the early 80s, uh, there were much fewer of us uh, in the city, less traffic, less noise generally. Um, none of the sort of, you know, obviously mobile phones, all those things. I mean, the communication was just so different. So I'm, I'm, that's quite a challenge to uh, really try and express what that was like and try and remember it. It's really challenging my, my memory in a way. And I realise it's not just about remembering. It's not a documentary that I'm making. At the same time, I really want to, not in a sort of, kind of BBC period detail kind of way, but I want to get the sort of feeling, the sense of what I felt that time was like into the film.
2: Mm. You say you don't you're not good at managing multiple projects, but I do have to give a shout out to your wonderful cinema collective, Anus Amour. How did that come about?
0: Uh, well, I founded it with Adam Roberts who's also a filmmaker and curator and we were just having a conversation about the dearth of Films that we really wanted to see, and wouldn't it be interesting if filmmakers could choose what films were shown in cinemas? And uh, and then we just started in a very small way in 2011, showing films at a, a cinema called the Lexi Cinema in Kensal Rise, kind of a long way from here. And then gradually, then we started showing. I don't know, for example, Tarkovsky's Stalker. Um, the, uh, the Renoir cousin Renoir and then now at the moment we've got a relationship with the ICA where we're showing this two-year uh, retrospective of Chantal Ackerman's films and actually this afternoon one of the things I had to do was to watch her most recent film that she's just finished that hasn't been shown yet here and we're hoping to premiere it at, at, towards the end of this year and I have to say I was in tears kind of practically the whole way through the film I mean it's a, it's a really extraordinary piece a lot about her mother um, who died recently, and it's incredibly moving. So that, I mean, it's very exciting to show the entire work of a filmmaker and then to finish with something kind of brand new, mm. but so connected with her other films.
2: It's wonderful. I can't wait. Um, I think we have to close there. Yes, I'm getting the nod. So thank you all so much for coming out, and thanks to Joanna. <laughs> thanks for listening to this
1: Barbican Screen Talk with Joanna Hogg. We'd like to hear from you. Let us know what you think of exhibition on social media at Barbican Centre. And if you'd like to hear more and support film at the Barbican, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or Acast or visit barbican.org.uk slash Screentalks Archive. Hold up.